go at it with everything. There's a there's a great quote from uh, Roald Dahl, and it's just it's along the lines of you know if you find something that you love and that you want to do and that you want to you know you want to pursue, go at it full throttle because lukewarm is no good. What do you say? Welcome to Song Stories, the podcast where we unpick the tales and tricks behind great songs and those that created them. I'm your host, Gavin Simpson, and on this week's episode, I'm buzzing to be joined by the fantastic Remead. Ray's a super interested and talented guy, and three things we learned from this week's episode include the stories behind his hit songs Nobody's and Play Called Home from his new EP, how and what inspired his award-winning documentary The Railway People, and things Ray has used from his time playing with Ocean Colour Scene and Jerry Cinnamon in his own songwriting. Without further ado, this is Ray Mead. So joining us, we have Raymond Reed, singer, songwriter, award-winning documentary maker, podcaster, all-round musical maestro. Raymond, I'm buzzing you join me. Thank you very much for coming onto the oh, show. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot, Gav. Nice to be here. Just want to dive straight into your new EP, um, Play Called Home. <laughs> yeah. Um, I love it. And literally one of my favourite songs of the year is Nobody's. So maybe if you could tell us a bit about how the project came about, um, understand that you like sing, play instruments, produce it, basically everything going on the record you've taken care of. I'd sort of love to hear about the project and uh, how it was formed. Um, yeah, I mean, it just became quite obvious we weren't going to be able to you know, get together with anybody in a, a studio anytime soon. And I, I started kind of just doing demos, you know, to pass the time. And I played them to a couple of mates and stuff and said, oh, I think I think these are half decent. You should maybe, you know, do do a bit more work on them. So I just kind of plugged away at it and it started to come together. Um, did it all at home. Just, just basically did a drum machine type thing at home and uh, went from there. But um, Nobody's is an interesting one because I, I wrote it maybe must, 2005, 2006 when I, I was in a band called Renell's at the time and it was of that of that kind of time and it must have slipped through the net when it, when it came time to do our album and just out of the blue, it wow. the, the, chorus, the chorus came out of my head out of nowhere, and that sometimes happens with songs. You know, it's it's not the it's not the right time for them or something, um, and it it just all came back to me. All the words and ever, I thought I thought I would change the lyrics to make them more like you know where I'm now or whatever. But it it just felt like it was all fully formed. So I, just, I left it as it was, and it seems to be everybody's favourite song so off the EP so I'm glad I've done it now do you know what I mean because um, I don't know it was just like a bonus you know it was a song that was there I didn't even realise I had <laughs> so yeah it was, I wish we were all this kind of straightforward as that but, but they're not Back to 2005, did it like did you have it recorded then, or was it one you just kind of had in your head as a like, not quite finished? Or it must have, um, we released an album, we recorded the album in 2005, um, so it would definitely been written around that time 2005 or six. Um, we definitely played it live a few times, but apart from that, I, I mean, there's definitely not a demo of it or anything, but I'd always remembered the kind of you know, the, the offbeats and that kind of thing, but. Um, I always thought it sounded a bit like Queens of the Stone Age, you know, a, a bit too like Queens of the Stone Age, to be honest with you. It maybe put me off it at the time, but I love them. But I just thought it was 
plagiarism, but yeah, it, um, it just came back to me and it felt like the right time to do it, and it turned out, it turned out all right. Writing a song like that where the kind of drums are almost in the foreground a bit, how, can you remember where you were when you wrote it back in 05 or how, like, how was it, how did it go from like nothing to that kind of really catchy instant drum thing? And then obviously the melody and everything, like, how was it built? I'd have been definitely staying at my mum and dad's at that point. Um, so it had just been usual, perched on the edge of my bed with an acoustic guitar, like, like all my songs at that time. Um, but the... The drums, I, I don't know, they were always, it, I think it was more, it was kind of written in a way that the drums would would lead it, you know, I think it kind of, um, I'm trying to think back, because we didn't, didn't do a lot of rehearsing in, in those days, you know, so it would have been a quick in and out. I mean, I didn't even have a an 8-track or anything, like when I had songs to, to play to them, it, it was a case of playing playing them to them, do you know what I mean? And like join in whenever you whenever you think you've got yeah. a part or something. So with the I, I can't remember. I, I still drank in those days, so that that period's <laughs> hazy. Um but it would have been it would have been all together in a room it would have started to, to uh, form as an idea. Cool man. you mentioned uh, writing songs with guitar in the end of your bed isn't sure a lot of songwriters do like how's that how's that changed between then and the sort of the rest of the EP? Or has it changed? Um I, th- I always write on acoustic guitar mainly. Although the, the title track Play Called Home, that um, that's basically two songs, you know, like the first part of it's kinda chilled and then it goes into the the riff and you know it kind of just becomes a bit more like animated but um i think i think that was written on electric guitar but the rest of it was just acoustics really um it's just how i, I get my ideas i mean i know a lot of people that will you know they may be songwriters and they, they work on different instruments and they can go to a piano or they i've got like zero ability on on anything outside the guitar and even that's debatable <laughs> to be honest with you but it kind of it just that's it seems to work you know like I like I like just sounds no no it's a true story um, but I'm probably considered more a, a bass player these days but it's um, it's always usually acoustic guitar you know, when I'm doing it you mentioned play called home. Like, what's what's the lyrics and what's it about? I mean, um, I, I, could, I could guess here, but obviously, I'd love to hear from the author. Seeing as we have him here, I wrote it about Brexit. You know, I wrote it about. Um, I thought I thought the whole campaign for the people who were you know, wanting to leave. I thought it was really xenophobic and quite racist. You know, and I, I just wanted to say something about that. Really, you know. I've done a, a bit of work with kind of Holocaust-related things in the last few years, and um, I thought the parallels were there if you if you looked closely enough the way they presented it. Um, I just it just feels like some of these people, not every one of them, you know, there's there's good and bad on both sides, but um, they're just it's like a plague, you know, and 
it's right on right on our doorstep. That's that's basically where the term came from. It's and then all of we've got a pandemic. <laughs> Everyone thinks it's about COVID, but it's it's not. It, it was written about Brexit. Ah, I see, man, I see. And the other song that really stuck out for me was I Thought I Was Dreaming. Um, almost, I wouldn't say 70s, but kind of cool guitar, like um, like driving noise through it. Are you able to tell us more about that, please? Yeah, um, that that was a riff that I'd had for a long time, that, that guitar riff. And I thought it sounded a bit like squeeze uh, up the junction. And I, I just could never really get it out of my head every time I revisited it when I was going to work on it or anything. Um, so I, I I don't know why it took me so long, but I, I changed it to a minor key. It was always sort of major, and that made all the difference. And sometimes just that one adjustment can open the floodgate, you know, and that's what happened. You know, as, soon as, as soon as I knew how that was going to sound, the rest of the song, it, it came really quickly. You know, it was one of those kind of rare things where it's... It's just all there for you, you know. What I mean, like I'm talking five, ten minutes, and you've got, you know, you've got the rough structure of the song, you know. So that was, it was um, fairly fast once I'd sorted out the problem. But again, another year and a half or something I'd had it for, just been playing it round and round. And it was originally uh, an open G tuning, which I, I like to do, you know, from time to time. It's, it's good to play like that, and it keeps it interesting the guitar, but. Sure. Um, that was part of the problem because I'm not sure how you do it in a minor. <laughs> I can play in open G major, but to, to make it minor, it starts to get a bit complicated and and less stonesy. Um, so uh, it just it went from there. It just became, I don't know, I think it's quite catchy. I think it's probably my favourite out of all of them. I, Said you recorded it all at the home studio. Like, how did it like literally record every single thing and drum machines? And like, how long did that take? Everything. I'll, I'll show you my drums. Got it here. I do it on Please. this. So MIDI keyboard. You just set up bass drum, snare drum, cymbals, and just bash away at it. It takes ages. Do you know what I mean? Like, it takes <laughs> it takes so long to to get it all together. But there's a certain um, sense of satisfaction when it you know it's all there uh, but no I mean unfortunately there's no touring there's no there's no music to be played live at the moment so it was purely a a, a means of passing some time really you know I just felt I had five good songs that makes it well together and it turned, turned out pretty well it was alright I'm glad you made it. And, it and would you do more or would you consider doing producing for other artists like going forward I've been asked to do a couple of things like that, but I don't, I don't really see myself as any kind of expert of anything like that. You know, I, I'm, 
I'm blaming all the time, really. You know, I think we played both in colour scene for a while, and also with Jerry Cinnamon, and it, it kind of I'm picking up things from them every time we, you know, we we work together, and um, maybe eventually if there's something I can pass on, or if it's going to be some use to to a younger band or whatever, or an older band, whatever, anyone that, that kind of needs a, a hand, I'm, I'd be happy to try it. But I think. I think you tend to know your own songs and what it is you're looking for, you know. Um, so I wouldn't rule it out, you know. Maybe. Anything particularly picked up from those guys or other artists that you worked in between doing the stuff with uh, the Renelis and then doing your solo stuff just now? I think I think playing with Steve Craddock is, has been like a revelation for me, you know, just seeing how he how he uses the pedals to to such good effect, you know, like he's. He's a phenomenal guitar player, but there's there's so much more to what he does than just playing the guitar. You know, like he's um, just the whole just the setup and how he uses <clears throat> excuse me different um, different effects at different times, and it's it's really interesting. I've tried to do a bit of that myself, really. You know, like just just use more effects and, and see what it takes us and different sounds and all that kind of thing. But um, and then with Jerry, it's I mean. The, the way he records his acoustic guitars and that kind of thing is is interesting, you know. Like he's he's interested in the you know positioning microphones and getting the maximum out of, of every one of his instruments and stuff. It's it's a it's, I'm like a sponge really around around them, you know. Like a, a kind of um, I think you've got to absorb, you know, what what you're mm. seeing them doing, you know, and try to put it to to good use for your own stuff when it comes time. Remember any like, initial efforts in songwriting? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, but like nothing, <laughs> nothing I'd be letting anybody hear. <laughs> but it was, you're just learning how to do it really, you know, like trying to find a way, you know, it's one thing learning to play the chords and do all that, but then melodies are a different thing. You know, as I've got older, I realise the melodies are kind of crucial part because everybody's got the same amount of notes and the same, you know, words that they can use, but the melodies are the kind of secret of of songwriting, I think. Do you know what I mean? So um, it took a while to, you know, to start to write, you know, decent songs, I think, but probably not even at school really probably 2001 2002 when I'd left I started to get more you know influences and listen to music from further back you know became heavily into the Sex Pistols and you know I love all that really heavy kind of rock and roll and obviously the Rolling Stones are like it just doesn't get any better than that to me and I love Exile Main Street never mind the bollocks are my, my two kind of joint greatest albums of all time you know but um, you just, I think, I think you just try to soak up what they're doing and, and put your stamp on it when you're starting out. Do you know what I mean? So everything sounds like something. You know, it's hard to to get a, a, your own sound these days, but yeah, you, you can, but try. Oh, I think you do, man. I think you do. So and then you're in the Ronellis. Then was there? And you, you started gigging, or like what? What, what was the? Maybe don't want to see your first song, but your maybe first song of note, or or when you start getting traction. Well, I, I had my like my own little school band that I had played with the, the guys that I knew at that point, and I don't know, but you know, a really kind of tragic moment was in you know two thousand. A, a good friend of mine, Mark May, 
he was a guitarist, songwriter in a band called The Pedestrians, who were who were doing great things in Glasgow at that point. He was a couple of years older than me, but we were, we were getting fairly tight friends. And um, he drowned in the Clyde, uh, probably, it was February, February 21st. And um, his brother Ian was the singer in The Pedestrians. And when Mark, you know, they, they didn't find him for a while, but when they eventually... They got him out, you know, they found his body and stuff. They, they, he wanted to carry on the band and I, I got I got asked to do it. And from then on, you know, it was, music became everything to me. Do you know what I mean? Like it was, I just felt, you know, it was an honour to carry on, you know, where, um, what Mark had started. And so I started to write, you know, a bit with Ian and, and stuff. I mean, they were all much older than me. I was only, I think I was only 17 at that point and, they were mid to late twenties, so there was a big age difference. But I loved that. Do you know what I mean, I think it's probably why I sort of enjoy to this day the company of older people. Really, do you know what I mean? My mates are all much older than me. Do you know what I mean? But I think um, that was that was an important time in my life. You know, like that 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 really lit the fuse. I did did four or five years with pedestrians, and I just I think. Um, I think everybody just wanted different things from it. I realised then I wanted to, this is what I wanted to do in my life and, you know, maybe they, they weren't as serious as I was about it and so I formed, you know, Renelles and stuff and in between times I had I'd done a bit of session work with Danny Wiley who was of the Cosmic Rough Riders at that point who were, who were riding pretty high so I did all his, his solo touring so that to get a taste of that at, you know, like quite a young age was was a bus man, do you know what I mean? Like to, to be getting on a bus and touring round and playing and played at Tina Park and you know daft things you remember. I remember doing gigs with Gomez who I really loved at the time. Just it all just seemed to snowball from, you know, between two thousand and one to probably two thousand four. That was it just became I, I just I was obsessed with music and I kinda have been ever since really, do you know what I mean? That was Looking back, that would be cool, man. Yeah, yeah. Hey, hope you're enjoying the show so far. And if you have a spare 30 seconds, I'd be buzzing if you can go into your podcast provider and leave us a cheeky little five star review. Thanks very much. Well, just to touch on a couple of your songs from uh, Fables and Posey, if you don't mind. I was listening back to it over the last week. I gave you a note, but I love the hardest part. Because um, what I liked about it was it sounded like a difficult time, but overall positive song. Um, and I hope I picked that up correctly. I'd love to know what it's about and if you remember uh, when it was first formed. Um, I do know what it's about. It's okay to ask, by the way. If any of them were no, difficult. No, it was, no, it was just a mad time, really. You know, like, I, I kind of... After, you know, when we had Renelles and that, you know, at one point it looked like we might be able to do something big. You know, like we were getting big supports. We, playing the Kings of Leon and the Zootons and the Proclaimers and we had a record deal in Japan and that kind of thing so we were travelling there and playing in America and it, it just all kind of stopped abruptly you know but it was all you know looking back it was just being young and full of full of um, drink Jack Daniels really do you know what I mean and I, I kind of when that all stopped I, I came off the rails a bit you know like I I ballooned. I, I was nearly 15 stone at one point, and I just—I thought I just fucked it, really. Do you know what I mean? Where to start? 
a swallow there. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the more right, I hit right. it, the better. <laughs> um, but I, I just didn't see a way, a way back from it. And I, I had a, a couple of years away from music, really. And out of the blue, I got offered a, <clears throat> a support slot with one of my heroes, who was Shane McGowan. And I went to London to play with Shane McGowan. We had an amazing night, but even more amazing was they needed a guitarist to play in his band. So I played my set and I got to play with Shane as well. And that that night kind of reminded me of how much I really love music and how much I, I love playing and, and all that kind of thing. And, but I knew I was in bad in a bad way, you know. I just I had to stop drinking, you know, like just just full of depression and just too fat and all that and it was just I can laugh about it now but it was a bad time it was a really bad time and the hardest part was the was getting getting back to myself you know starting trying to stop drinking and taking drugs and uh-huh. everything else do you know what I mean and you just come to terms where I might have blown my best chance at doing something as a musician you know and it was hard to to come round to that because I pissed a lot of people off, you know, I had a really bad attitude as a as a younger guy and it, it was it was um, that song is an apology to a, a few people. I think you know that I think that's what I intended it to to be. It was try to square it up and that was it. But it, it lit the fuse and you know I started to write again and you know I, I was starting to get healthier and you know started you know when I started to exercise again the weight came off pretty quickly and you know I started to really enjoy sobriety and um, I would go to meetings with a group called the Carlton Athletic who are amazing guys in the East End of Glasgow I, I didn't feel comfortable doing AA you know I didn't want to stand up and say I, I, I didn't think I was an alcoholic but I knew I'm getting addictive personality and I knew I was drinking too much um, so they they basically do it through abstinence and, and exercise and stuff so I started running half marathons with them and training and you know they had a, a music sort of wing of what they do as well so I would go and volunteer do that started doing a bit of boxing with them um, and they they were just they were just a lifeline you know because it's funny how you know you found out who my mates were. Do you know what I mean? It was nobody that I, th- that I thought it was. Um, people that I thought you know were, were pals for life, not kind of thing. They just they just vanished, you know. So it was a whole readjustment period. But the whole spirit of that album, Fables and Follies, was just finding finding my way back to to music again, you know. And, it was a really happy time, you know, and I think that comes across in the in the playing and, and in the songs, you know, because I recorded it with you know my one of my best pals, Ross McFarlane on drums, he's the drum on Texas and Proclaimers and Stillskin and all that, and then Gary John Kane from the Proclaimers, you know, he's a great pal of mine and, and we did it with a guy called Stuart McLeod, who I'd only met round about that time, but he's a phenomenal guitar player and a really great producer, stroke engineer. I learned a lot from him and Again, they're, they're a good bit older than me, but it was, it was it was just brilliant. I felt so happy to be just playing music again, and I, and I knew what we were doing was good. You know, like it just felt exciting, and you know, and obviously 
there was a few guests on it as well, which was a, a real buzz, you know, like that that kept it kind of really, really exciting because every couple of months there'd be somebody else coming in to, to put a, a guest appearance on. So I knew I knew over the, the piece that we'd done something pretty cool, you know, and I'd, I'd be I'd be proud of it, do you know what I mean? So that's that was the story of, of Fables, really. The biggest guest of your uh, of your music, maybe recently, was in uh, at the top of the stairs. I remember the documentary at the time. I mean, it's, it's an amazing documentary, and we'll go into it. But just in terms of the song, what order did it come in terms of like the poem that you had and the visit, and then obviously you added um, Eva saying the poem to the song. Like how I'd love to hear more about the actual song just now, then talk about the documentary as well. It's okay. The song was. It was a reaction to going to Auschwitz for the first time and it really, it's no exaggeration, you know, it's, it's, it changed my life going there, it really altered the way I see the world, made me a bit more tolerant as a person, do you know what I mean? But it, it's, I think obsessions is the kind of word I would use, I've become obsessed with the whole sort of subject matter of, of Auschwitz and in particular, I was in Birkenau, but the Holocaust as a whole was something I didn't know much about, and it's been a kind of you know a bit of a self learning thing that I've been on. And um, but I was so moved by that day, that first visit. You know, I, there's when you go there to Birkenau, there's a there's a watchtower where it you know it looks over the entire place of where where the camp was. You know, and I just remember thinking, just how horrific it was, you know, it was so palpable, you know, you could just feel the the badness of the place, you know, and um, I was on the plane on the way home and it just came to me, like, at the top of the stairs, I thought, well, it's the title or something, do you know what I mean? And I started scribbling, just just making notes, really, you know, none of it really rhymes as a poem, but that's just a byproduct of it, of it being scribbles, do you know what I mean? It, it just became that and I had the idea, I wanted to, I decided I wanted to do something and, and donate some money in some shape or form, but I just didn't know what to do with this poem. So I had the song, um, no, no, I'm talking rubbish. The poem was called How Could It Be, but the song was at the top of the stairs. So I had the I had the title <clears throat> and that never came into the poem. But I, I, a couple of weeks after visiting there, I, I then wrote the song, you know, and... and uh, Someone said to me, you know, it'd be really, it'd be really great to have that, you know, the poem along the end of that, you know, you could, you could fit it in and you could read it, you know, as a kind of tribute thing. I thought oh, that's interesting, but then I had read Eva Kaur's book, Surviving the Angel of Death, and she was, she was a force of nature, you know, even before I met her and we became as close as we did, you know, I, I knew she was uh, special. And uh, I thought, imagine, imagine she would do it, you know, because she was always on Twitter and all that kind of thing. So I knew she had an iPhone. I knew she'd be able to record her voice and send it to me fairly easily. Um, so yeah. I love in the clips how she owns life and she's just like, she's actually very positive about everything. But even, I mean, you're good in the documentary, Ray, but she, she, you know, she's the star of it. Like she's just such a phenomenal oh, outlook from what's happened, you know. 
So I emailed yeah, sorry, her. I got, off there. No, sorry, I, I got an email address for her, and I had um, I sent her. I just sent her things saying like a musician from Scotland. I'd like to like to work with you. I wondered what you thought. I'm not kidding. You know, within two, two to five minutes. This is interesting. Yeah, great. How about you meet me at Auschwitz? And we recorded there. And then she wrote, um, P.S., I want to show you how to survive in a place like that. So she instantly had to like, grab my attention with it, and I thought, well, it's, it's probably a once-in-a-lifetime little did I know um, opportunity to um, go there with someone who was there when it happened. So we made, we made arrangements, and off I went, you know, but in between times, a mutual friend told a mutual friend of his what, what I was doing and we said, well, can we come and film this? We think this could be, you know, something. I had, I only told one or two people I was doing it, you know, and they said, yeah. we'll just come and start filming you, walking about and all that and, and see what happens. And there was no, there was no blueprint for what became, you know, the railway people. It, it was just by luck that I had that, natural um, connection with Eva as soon as I met her I knew it was just she I think she knew it too you know we just had a there was just a bit of a, a special bond there from the start and um, she I think she just she was interested in my life and I was interested in hers you know and even when we said goodbye after doing the recording I knew yeah. I knew we were going to be in touch I, I can't explain it and, you know and then a couple of months later she was she was based in Indianapolis uh, in America, but she travelled more than anyone I've ever seen. I mean, the, the air miles that she clocked up, <laughs> unbelievable, you know, it just never stopped. So she was in London, I went to see her in London, and the first thing she said was, right, now we can have a proper talk, the cameras aren't here. And we just talked about life, talked about everything, and um, from then on we, we were just the stick of Steve's really, you know. Kind of impact think Eva had on you, like just on you personally, because she seemed um, a very powerful woman. And I guess I'd be curious to know, having spent time with her, what kind of influence she might have had. I become a bit more patient, you know. Um, her whole, her whole. Um, I wouldn't say claim to fame, but you know, because it it was wasn't well received by a lot of people in that in that world, you know, but she forgave the Nazis for what they did to her, you know, I mean, she was a, she was a twin, you know, she was, you know, experimented on by, you know, Joseph Mengele, uh, she endured the most horrific things imaginable, you know, and to, to come out of that and at that age, I think she was only 10 when she came out of the camp, um, and then go on and live the life that she led, and then to get to a point where you know, she felt that she could help other people through her forgiveness idea was really powerful. You know, it made me think about some um, some people in my life that I would I'd like to square things with. You know, and that I guess that would be sort of progress because it, it hadn't entered my head <laughs> before I before I met her. You know, but um, she was she had the best intentions for it. You know, and I think that. She wasn't asking anyone else to do it either. What, what she was saying was, um, 
this is this is how I've been able to deal with my life. This is how I've moved on from what happened to me. You know, and if you don't understand, then I respect that. But I ask that you respect that this is how I'm I'm able to cope. Um. So yeah, I guess I guess a bit more patience and um, trying not to be so knee-jerk or, or judgmental when things don't go my way and stuff. You know, she pops into my head with, with things like that. But she's on my mind all the time, really, do you know what I mean? Because it was such a unique friendship, really, you know. It, 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 I think it yeah. caught us both cold, you know. But um, I'd, I'd say she's made me a bit more patient. We've got a final question, which I'd love to know your answer to. I think given the stuff we've covered and you've obviously worked with a lot of people and learned a lot, what advice would you give for, like, you know, if I was... Um, 20 years younger and just starting out and said we loved you to give me some worldly wisdom that, that, that you wish you'd been told when you were my age 20 years ago if that works um, <laughs> go at it with everything there's a, there's a great quote from uh, Roald Dahl and it's, just, it's along the lines of you know if you find something that you love and that you want to do and that you want to you know you want to pursue Go at it full throttle because lukewarm is no good. And I think I think if you've got an enthusiasm for for anything in life, do you know what I mean? You you should immerse yourself in it. You know, you you've got to you can't I, I never had a backup. I didn't there just was nothing else that meant anything to me enough meant enough to me to, mm. to even consider I'm not going to make it in some shape or form as a musician I'm going to find a way to make this work whether that's as a songwriter or as I found out more as a, a session musician um, you can't allow doubt in your head I think I think you just need to go at it full pelt as you would say you know like I, I think it's you, you just have to you've just got to go for it you know all out all or nothing and you and you know you, you'll get there I, I, I just, you know, I always remember a thing that Craig Reed, the Proclaimers, said to us, you know, that was the first kind of big tour that I did was opening for the Proclaimers, and he said, you know, Bunny, the harder we work, the luckier we get, and I just never, never forgot that, I just thought that was good advice, you know, and from from somebody as talented as him, you know, I think he's a genius, as is his brother, um, I've just always kind of carried that with me, so that would be it. Cool man, very well put. Just according to me there, if you don't mind, you said about like, going all into it, like your documentaries you've done and projects, you seem to really deep dive into them, but I, I referred to you as a documentary maker at the start, but would you consider yourself a documentary maker? Because maybe I don't want to speak out of turn, but then I'm also intrigued that the projects you've found, like, like you really go into them. I guess, I think... how did you get into that? And what's your sort of... Um... I wouldn't, I wouldn't describe myself as a documentary maker, no, I mean, I think I'd like to be known as a writer, you know, I, I like that, I've written some stuff for GQ magazine in the last year, which I really enjoyed doing that, um, but it's, it's a, it really boils down to that, what, you, what you're interested in and what you've got a passion for, um, you can't help what, what kind of captures your imagination. I did a thing on the, the West Murders, which was a two-part series, and again, that, that all stems from it was so shocking when I was, again, I think 
maybe 10 or 11 when that story broke. So that was that was really shocking to me as a kid and I've always been frightened about it, you know, like I've always I've always thought that was kind of as dark as it, as it gets, you know. And um, I felt it was 25 years since those murders and I, I just wanted to revisit it. So I, I got in touch with Fred and Rose West lawyer, Leo Goatley, and, and a guy, uh, Howard Soons, who broke the story at the time and we had... I write good talk, you know, and it turned out pretty well. I enjoyed it. And the other thing that I did was, um, you know, with Richie Edwards, the Manic Street Preachers who went missing again. Mm, sister. 25 years, eh, well, 26 years now, but last year when I did it, it was the 25th anniversary since his, his disappearance. And I spoke to his sister. It took me a couple of years to, to not talk around, but just convince her that I had the right intentions. She gets approached by a lot of nutters, do you know what I mean? Like people that just don't don't really understand what's happened, you know, and um, journalists wanting a quick picture or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, all that kind of thing, you know, just basically don't have the right thing at heart, which is the welfare of her brother or the fact that her mum and dad died without knowing what happened to their son and it's a real it's really tragic, man. Do you know what I mean? I think that I think that really upsetting. Um, so we made this podcast, and it, it, it went really well, and you know, it, it brought a lot of attention to it. And the, the ultimate aim is obviously one day, Richard, you know, you, we get the answer, you know, for for Rachel that you know, whether he's dead or alive or whatever, you know, she just wants some closure because at the moment she just it's limbo, you know, and I don't think people understand how how difficult that is for her, you know, like to, to be living with that, you know, living between hope and hopelessness every day. It could be something else, you know, and um, so it was interesting. But what would feel like a result is if we could somehow get the police to reopen the, the file, you know, that, that would feel like a massive result. And I mean, we're, we're working on, you know, an idea to pitch to television at the moment to, to make a, you know, like a film documentary based on what we've discussed in the podcast and um, it's been going it's going pretty well so far. No, never any guarantees are going to get a commission, but I think it's a strong idea. I think it's I think loss is a thing that we all experience, do you know what I mean? But perpetual loss, not not having the chance to say goodbye or deal with it or anything like that. Rachel's got so much to share with people and um, in that in that field, you know, and, and I think her advice could make all the difference for families that are in the same position or that find themselves in the same position. What's the protocol when someone goes missing? It's um, it's really interesting. It's fascinating. But I need to be tuned into something to go all at it. You know, I'm not I'm not good at um, pretending. Do you know what I mean? If if if, if something captures my imagination like that, I'll go I'll go full throttle. Do you know what I mean? Like I need to. Uh, like I, it's, I don't really have a say in it. Too. It just, it just takes over, and that's, that's the only way I can really describe it. You know, it sounds a bit weird, but um, that's that's as close as no, I can. No, it makes sense. Yeah. I think what what I really like, and I was probably trying to learn from it to be honest with like your documentaries and the podcast is really good at getting the people out of the situation. Like with Nikki's sister, I'd obviously heard of the story, but until I listened to that it really made me empathise and think, oh my God, this poor woman's had to go through this for so long, rather than, you know, what happened to the Manchester Street Breachers missing, you know, guitar or bass player. Um, yeah, you're really good at doing that. I don't know 
how you do it, or maybe it's because you deep dive, or because I guess you know these people over time. I think it's, it's how you approach people, you know. I think you've got to get the tone right. When I first approached Rachel Edwards, I had far too much, you know, the, the, the pitch was far too weighted towards the Manic Street preachers. And it took me a while to realise that anything we do isn't going to be yeah. about the band. You know, and when that twigged, that was the, the kind of moment of like, fuck's sake, that's, that's yeah. where it needs to be so about changing her. And, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, we need to present her. You know, because everybody knows how uh, Nicky Wire feels about it or James Dean Bradfield or Sean Moore. It's no less a traumatic thing for them, losing their bandmate, losing their friend. But I think, I think, well, I think Rachel needed to do the podcast like that. I think it's, I think it's made her feel really, not, I think she just feels quite happy that, that people have heard her side of things now and, and, and heard the truth. You know the, the reality of dealing with that police investigation and everything because it was. I mean, it's. I mean, that's a story in its own. You know, it's it's the the failings that that family experienced. It's, it's just terrible. So it's nice to be able to present that and, and let people know that these things happen. Um, if it helps in some way, you know, and it jogs someone's memory, or you know, and they can they maybe remember something and they want the police and stuff and that's that's fantastic you know but the, the main thing was to, to give Rachel you know a, a platform to, to tell it you know there was no censorship there was nothing I just said tell me whatever you want to tell me do you know what I mean and let's but again I'd been living with it for six seven months by that point I, I was working on it every single day and there's not a thing I didn't know about it when it came time to record it do you know what I mean so it was really natural to to talk about the case because I just I knew everything there was to know about it, and I, I think that's important, really. When you're you're going to be interviewing someone, you've got to. Um, there's not. I mean, I think I mentioned to you before. You, I've done things in the past. It's just been a car crash because the guys involved have, have just not done any work on it. They've just turned up, and and you're just another. Um, you know, like you're just the, the person they're going to be talking to that day. There's no there's no background into it, there's no effort, there's no research. Um, I'm the exact opposite. I, I obsess about things, do you know what I mean? I, I don't sleep when I'm doing it. I'm sitting up at four or five in the morning, totally tuned in, because it it's, it just demands it, you know? like it's, these, these things are so important to me, you know? I, I, I want it to be authentic, do you know what I mean? I want people to know what I'm here. You know, if you're going to do something, you do it properly as well. It's like give exactly. it all. Hundred percent. Cool. Um, just to wrap up and say thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate it, and also being so open and honest about all your stories and interests in your uh, music. It's really interesting to know. No, thanks. Thanks for asking. I've really enjoyed it. I, I honestly, I, I never do things like this. I, I just don't. I think I said to you, I always just feel there's, there's more interesting people you can be talking to. But I have enjoyed this. Do you know what I mean? So thanks. Thanks a lot for having me. Oh, I enjoyed it. I'm so pleased. And I, I mean, you see there's more interesting people, but for me, all the stuff you've done and the, I like your music as well and the project's super interesting. And I've been Tosh Fitz and I kind of, the things you say resonated and then watching the documentary resonated again. So thanks for doing it all. Yeah. No, that's good to hear. But... That was the fantastic remade. I've been your host, Gavin Simpson. Thank you so much for joining the show. Hope you can join again next week. I'm off to work on a new life plan.
See you later. Ultimately, you have to be you. And you might be a lot better than they are, but by being you. Because that is the way it is. You, you are who you are with your pluses and your minuses. And that's an important thing. So when you are the best you, you are very happy. Yeah. yeah you really are. Yeah, I agree. And